Colossians chapter 3. We will continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3. You can find that on page 984, page 984 in the blue ESV Bible if you'd like to follow along there. The title of our sermon this morning is Setting Your Mind on Christ. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are raised, seated, and set. Now, many of you are familiar with the story of the five missionary couples who went to Ecuador to reach the Alca Indians, the most famous of whom were Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Well, you recall that uh, all five of the men eventually were killed while their wives and their children remained at the base camp. And while some of them returned back home, a few of the wives and their children remained and they made a tremendous impact on the Alka Indians. Many of them became Christians, and in fact, some were appointed as pastors and baptized the children of the very missionaries that they had previously killed. It's an incredible story of what God had done there. Several things have been written about those missionary efforts in Ecuador, and as a result, many other Christians were encouraged and inspired to become missionaries themselves. Roy Orpin from New Zealand was inspired by reading one of the stories of the family, the missionary efforts of John and Betty Stamm, along with the Elliots. Roy committed himself to missionary service after reading their story and after being accepted by the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, he was sent to Thailand. And when he was in Thailand, he, he married his fiancée, who was a young English girl. He met her while they were both studying at the New Zealand Bible Training Institute, and her name was, was Jillian. And so the newly married couple tried to make their home in this small village in Thailand amongst the tribal people known as the Mios. Now within a year of being there, violence erupted all around them. Uh, Three Thai opium dealers had been killed even though they were left begging for their lives. Uh, Roy left his pregnant wife to go into the village as he traveled around surrounding villages preaching the gospel. One night he came home having stumbled across the bodies of two more murdered Thais. Now Roy and Jillian eventually moved to another village that was supposedly safer in order to teach some of the Christians who lived there. And then as the day for their baby's birth came close, Jillian moved into a mission hospital on bed rest. Roy had decided to follow her, but on the day before he was going to join Jillian, Roy set out to visit the surrounding villages again to preach and to teach. And on his return, he was attacked by three men who beat him and shot him. Roy survived and was able to struggle on with fatal wounds and was taken to a government hospital. The now very pregnant Jillian joined him and she was by his side for four days until the 26-year-old missionary finally died of kidney failure. Jillian recounts that during these days, Roy asked her to recite one of his favorite choruses to him. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Perhaps you know that hymn. Not many days after Roy's funeral, Murray Roy was born, their little baby boy. And Jillian returned to work among 
the Mio tribes people when they had just begun to sow these seeds. And along with two other single women missionaries, Jillian saw a spiritual harvest when 12 families of the Mio people turned to Christ burned all of their pagan charms, and while difficult and while trying after her husband had been killed, Jillian never regretted the sacrifice that they had made in order to bring Christ to a lost people who would eventually come to know and trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all throughout church history, you can find stories about people who have given their lives for the sake of Christ, many of them being on the mission field, But depending where a person is, many of them in their very own homes. Being a Christian can be risky business in this world. And we don't really understand that in our culture because God has shown us so much grace in the West and we have escaped any kind of persecution thus far. However, for many Christians throughout the history of the church and even this very day, As we are here right now, there are brothers and sisters in this world that are gathering in secret for fear of persecution or consequence. It's something that they do week in and week out. We are tremendously blessed, brothers and sisters. But one thing that can happen when we are so blessed is that we begin to lose something of what it means to live daily in Christ. Let's be honest, comparatively, we have it very easy. And as a result, it's very easy for us to shift our attention away from a constant dependence upon Christ, isn't it? Looking to the greatness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has secured for us and all that Jesus has promised us and shift our eyes to the next new and neat thing that we have in this world. And we have a lot of neat things in this world. The Lord hasn't only blessed us with freedom from persecution, He has blessed us with with a lot of wonderful stuff, beautiful places to visit, wonderful things to have, great food to eat, great drinks to enjoy, amazing buildings to gather in, fun sports to participate in, wonderful people to love and and spend our time with, amazing technology to make discoveries with. there, There is so much in this world that God has given us. There are so many ways to have our attention diverted entirely away from Christ and life with Christ toward the things of this world. And when you think of people like Roy and Jillian, the difference between them and us... In many ways, the life that they lived and the life that Lord has blessed us to live. And you think of all of that in light of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and all that He is and all that Paul has shown us that He is throughout the book of Colossians. It's really striking, isn't it? There's such a profound difference in so many ways. As good as it is, And yes, the Lord has given us to enjoy so many gifts from Him in this life, but as good as it is, there still is far greater, infinitely greater to be enjoyed in the Supreme One, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we get back into Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we look at chapter 3, we see Paul emphasizing the importance of the believers setting their eyes and their hearts and their minds on Christ and all that is above. Now, remember the context here is is Paul working to keep the Colossians from being 
taken in by false teachers that were seeking to infiltrate the church. And we have identified those teachers by their false teaching of Gnosticism. But we saw last time that there were others who had teachings of legalism and asceticism and mysticism that were also trying to infiltrate. All of them trying to pull believers away from true life in Christ into their other odd fantasies and man-made religions. And so in the text this morning, as Paul is halfway through his letter now, he gives the believers a sort of reset, a, a reminder, and he gives them some direction. Now listen, if you and I want to live lives as believers, that should persecution come knocking at our door, that we would be ready to die for the sake of Christ. We must heed the Apostle's wisdom that he gives us here this morning. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 13 years now, and one of the things that will never stop, however long the Lord has me doing this, is the conversations I will have with, with Christians about the struggle we all have with the temptation to sin and the desire to defeat sin and to walk in holiness and godliness. And if you're a Christian... This is a genuine desire. And so when you identify sin in your life, you, you hate it, you want to get rid of it, you want to turn from it, but it's there. And sometimes there's this particular sin in your life maybe that keeps popping up. And so you, you hear a story about missionaries who willingly lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel and you think, die for Christ. I can't even go a day without committing the same sin that I committed yesterday. I can't go a week without having to sit here on Sunday morning during our prayer of confession and confess the same thing I've confessed over the last 10 weeks. But what's going on there is something, is something to think about often. It's something that, that Paul is addressing under the surface throughout the book of Colossians. It's really something we see all throughout the Bible. We fail as Christians to wage effective war against the world, the flesh, and the devil in terms of temptation and sin because we're so often trying to do it with the wrong weapons. Typically, we have, we have this mindset that we need to simply identify that something is, sim uh, is sinful and then we just need to not do it. To just stop it. If you've seen the video of the counselor who tells the woman to stop it. And so we hold on as, as tight as we can with white knuckles and we say, I'm, I'm not going to do it, I won't do it, I, I can't do it. And then what happens? Eventually we do it. Why? Because we've operated under the false notion that if we just have our minds set on doing something or not doing something, that we can talk ourselves into it. Or maybe if we're just convinced enough of the horrid consequences of sin, then we'll be fearful enough to not do something. Now, I don't want to suggest that I'm saying it's that we shouldn't consider the fact that God does require effort from us with self-control to not sin. He does. 
Nor am I suggesting that there shouldn't be a healthy fear of the consequences of sin. There should be. However, if our entire plan in life is to flee from sin, and it's all boiled down to the war on drugs campaign slogan of just say no, we're going to end up saying yes over and over again. Any approach to resist temptation and eventual sin that consists primarily in gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and coaxing our wills will ultimately fail and either will turn to us completely turning from Christ altogether or will just result in a joyless, mean-spirited legalism that has no flavor and no taste for the sweetness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished now everything, everything about what the Gnostic false teachers, along with the legalists and the mystics and the ascetics, everything they were teaching was about white-knuckled religion just hanging on tight. But the thing that every self-made attempt at fleeing sin misses is the powerful allure of sin. The reality is that when we sin, in that moment, it often feels really good, doesn't it? Sin is ultimately impossible in our own to resist because it feels so good. Hebrews 11.25 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. And notice, while they are fleeting pleasures, they are pleasures nonetheless. So we readily yield to it because it's pleasurable. And when we're trying to white-knuckle it all, the immediate gratification of sin will almost always triumph over the fear and the consequence of a just-say-no mantra that we've tried to bake into our minds. And then next Lord's Day, you're sitting right there in those blue chairs during our prayer of confession, reciting the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, and I do the very things I hate. Now remember, we saw in chapter 2 that Paul ended that chapter by crushing any argument that the flesh could be, could be triumphed over through works of legalism or mysticism, mysticism or asceticism. And he's been dealing with this false religion of Gnosticism all along. And so now he answers a burning question that has been building all along in this letter. What then can we do to have victory over our sin? How can I be the kind of Christian that is so faithful that when they come to take me away because of Christ, that I do not waver, that I do not fall, but that I see Christ as my all in all. Well, the first thing Paul shows us in verse 1 is that the Christian life is about continually seeking Christ in his fullness. Look again at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now remember back to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Paul wrote, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And then in verse 20, he wrote, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So he has this theme we see going on, this theme of death and resurrection playing out. 
If you are in Christ, he says, you have died. And he's saying you have died to the old man or the old woman, and you have been raised to a new man or a new woman in Christ. And so what he's saying here in the first part of verse 1 is simply, if you are a Christian, you have been made a new creation. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, isn't it? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The old has died away. It's dead and buried. And behold, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, you have been raised with Christ. And so if you are in Christ, what is your life all about? Paul is showing us that life in Christ is about seeking Christ in his fullness. It's about having communion with God. And here he shows us that it comes as we're seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Now what are these things above that Paul is referring to? Well, he's not talking about angels and heavenly furniture, the throne of Jesus, or the golden streets or mansions that Southern Gospel singers can't stop singing about. No, the things above are not material items. There are things like Christ's supremacy over all things, like Paul detailed for us in chapter 1. There are things like Christ filling all of the universe with his power and his glory and his majesty. And in so doing, he reveals his character and his power and his presence and his love and his grace and his mercy and his wrath and his justice and every other attribute that he possesses in its fullness. And so this is Paul's way of simply saying, seek the one who dwells above. And so how do I get to a place in my Christian life where I'm walking faithfully with Christ in such a way that, that should my life be required in a moment of persecution that I will stand faithfully with Christ and will not compromise to save my own neck? How do I get to a place in my Christian life where I'm not just trying to white-knuckle my way through dealing with sin, but I'm, I'm kept from temptation? I'm able to walk in the freedom of Christ without the tight grip of sin around me, choking me, suffocating me, until I give in for a simple fleeting pleasure that will only leave me with guilt and shame and brokenness, because it always does. I must seek Christ continually. I must utilize all of the means at my disposal to commune with Christ. You see, white-knuckling your self-will to avoid the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil is, is trying to deal with the problem that is far too downstream, you see. If you want to deal with the problem, you have to go to the source. You're far too far down the river to deal with the problem if you don't move upstream and deal with what's really going on. You see, whatever your particular sin struggle is, it's not primarily that thing and the temptation that leads to that thing. The problem is your communion with God. It's a lack of seeking after the things above that Paul is talking about here. And so Jesus teaches us about the persistence that is necessary in the Christian life, continually going back to him, doesn't he? 
Remember the parable of the persistent widow who wouldn't stop until she got an answer from the judge. Or, or Jesus telling us that we ask and we seek and we knock and there's a persistence given to this order for the things above and the promise that is given that they will be given to us as we do so. So you see, holiness and godliness that we truly desire as believers in Christ and the ability to say no to fleshly desires and instead have the rightly ordered desires to please God and to walk faithfully with Him, it doesn't come through rigorous asceticism and denying ourselves the gifts of God. It doesn't come through a strict adherence to self-imposed regulations to keep away from things and to do certain other things that God hasn't prescribed. It doesn't come through mystical experience, but it comes when our minds are captivated and controlled by the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. It comes when we are persistent in our pursuit of our communion with God. Now Paul goes on with this in our second point this morning in verse 2, that Christians ought to think often of Christ and hold loosely to the things of this world. So the primary way that we do all of this, Paul shows us, is through our minds. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now we often want to make this major distinction between our heart and our minds, but the two are not at odds with one another. They're not particularly different in the Bible. They're generally interchangeable as they're talked about. So if I want my heart to be enraptured by the beauty and the majesty of Christ, it comes when I contemplate Christ. It comes when I think upon Christ, learning more about Christ. It comes through the reading and the study of His Word. It comes through intentional and regular prayer. It comes through the sacraments. It comes through worship. It comes through the gathering of God's people. When our minds are fixed on the things above through the means that God has provided, our mental capacity for earthly things begins to fade away. Now again, we need to talk with wisdom here. What is Paul writing about when he mentions things that are on the earth? What exactly does he have in mind? He's dealing primarily with the issue of idolatry. And we all know that anything in this life can become an idol to us. It's easy to want to point to stuff or to point to money and say that must be what Paul means. So maybe he's against us having stuff and money. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying And all of Scripture really is saying, and more specifically God is saying, that God is against stuff and money having us. You see the difference? When it becomes our God. And you, maybe you may not be all that tempted by money and stuff, but maybe you're tempted to make your children the absolute center of your world and everything in your world revolves around them. Maybe you're tempted to make your job your identity and your entire life is fixed on your work and making sure your life is oriented around everything pertaining to that work. Maybe your sole focus is going on your next vacation or playing your next video game or eating your next meal or maybe you want to be famous and you want everyone to know who you are or you want to be the best at whatever you do and you will sacrifice anything and everything to gain a reputation. Anything can become an idol. 
Now look, God gives us great things. God wants us to work hard and be the best that we can in our vocations. God blesses us with material blessings. It's not wrong to have money or stuff or to want to be the best we can in our work or in the games that we play or the meals that we eat or the vacations we go on. But when our taste for Christ, when our desire for Christ pales in comparison to all of these things, our minds are now set on the earth and not on the things that are above. When I'm more concerned with people knowing who I am because of what I've accomplished and the work that I have done, then I am concerned with whether or not I'm pleasing Christ. My mind is wrong and it needs to be changed. And I will know when that's the case because as I go down the road, I begin to see what I'm willing to do in order to get that thing in my life to have that thing. I'll be willing to compromise in one area in order to get something in the other. But the reality is we cannot serve two masters because you will love the one and hate the other. And so maybe your, your next vacation is your thing. And listen, I just got home from the best vacation I've ever had in my entire life. Hands down, it was phenomenal. But if that's what's most important to you, you're going to be willing to compromise. You'll squeeze in those extra hours at work on the Lord's Day instead of worshiping with the church so that you can get the money to save or the time you need for vacation. You'll pull back from supporting the work of the ministry so you have some extra cash. You'll forego time in private worship for your travel research, to look at pictures and dream about all that you're going to do. And here's the thing that you're going to find, like everything else. Once you go and you do all that you wanted to do, it will be wonderful and you will enjoy it, but it's one of those fleeting pleasures because we all know the worst part about taking a vacation is that they end, right? They're over eventually. Then what? If our minds are not first and foremost fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will live in a constant state of disappointment and misery because nothing else can satisfy our very real longing for purpose and meaning and joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. There's a great novel called Dandelion Wine. It's by Ray Bradbury. You may know who he is. From, he wrote the book Fahrenheit 451. But in this story, there's a character by the name of Leo Offman, and he created a, a happiness machine. And anyone who went into the machine could experience happiness. Well, he had this conversation over and over with his wife, and he had a difficult time convincing his wife, Lena was her name, to go into the machine, but eventually she did. And here's how it plays out in the story. It says... Lena got into the machine. She sat down and looked out at her husband, shaking her head. It's not me that needs this. It's you, a nervous wreck. Please, he said, you'll see, as he shut the door. Press the button, he shouted to his unseen wife. There was a click. The machine shivered quietly like a huge dog dreaming in his sleep. And at first, there was nothing but the tremor of the machine's own secretly moving cogs and wheels. 
Is Mama all right? asked Naomi. All right, she's fine. There now, there. And inside the machine, Lena Offman could be heard saying, Oh, and then again, Ah, in a startling voice. Look at that, said his hidden wife. Paris, and later London. Oh, there goes Rome. Oh, the pyramids. Ooh, perfume, said Lena. Somewhere a phonograph played the blue Danube faintly. Music, I'm dancing. She only thinks she's dancing, the father confided to the world. Amazing, said the unseen woman. Leo Offman blushed. What an understanding wife I have. And then inside the happiness machine, Lena Offman began to weep. The inventor's smile quickly faded. She's crying, said Naomi. She can't be. She can't be. But she is. Well, she simply can't be crying, Leo Offman, blinking, pressed his ear to the machine. But yes, she's crying like a baby. He could only open the door. Wait, there his wife sat, tears rolling down her cheeks. Let me finish. She cried some more, and Leo Offman turned off the machine, and he was stunned. He was shocked. Oh, it's the saddest thing in the world, she wailed. I feel awful. I feel terrible. She climbed out through the door. First, there was Paris. Well, what's wrong with Paris? asked Leo. I never even thought of being in Paris in my life. But now you have got me thinking, Paris. So suddenly I want to be in Paris and I know I'm not. It's almost as good, this machine, said Leo. No. Sitting in there, I knew, I thought, it's not real. Stop crying, Mama. She looked at him with great dark wet eyes. You had me dancing. We haven't danced in 20 years. Well, I'll take you dancing tomorrow night. No, no, it's not important. It shouldn't be important. But your machine says it's important. So I believe it'll be right after I cry some more. Well, what else? What else? The machine says, you're young, but I'm not. It lies. This is the sadness machine. Sad in what way? And Lena grew quieter and she said, Leo, the mistake you made is you forgot some hour, some day, we all got to climb out of that thing and go back to dirty dishes and beds not made. While you're in that thing, sure, a sunset lasts forever almost. The air smells good. The temperature is fine. All the things you want to last, last. But outside, the children wait on lunch. The clothes need buttons. And then, let's be frankly, how long can you look at a sunset? Who wants a sunset to last? Who wants perfect temperature always? Who wants air smelling good always? So after a while, who would even notice? Better for a minute or two a sunset. After that, let's have something else. People are like that. How could you forget? Did I? He asked. Sunset we always like because they only happen once and go away. But Lena, that's sad. And she said, no, if the sunset stayed and we got bored, that would be a real sadness. So two things you did you should never have. You made quick things go slow and stick around. You brought things far away to our backyard where they don't belong. And they just tell you, 
No, you'll never travel, Lena Offman. Paris, you'll never see. Rome, you'll never visit. But I always knew that. So why tell me? Better to forget and make do. Better to forget and make do. You see, what Ray Bradbury captured in this poignant story is the very thing that the Apostle Paul is pointing to. When we spend our entire lives fixed on trying to find this constant stream of happiness in the things of this world, it quickly fades away. It will always fade away because it was made to fade away. That was its very intention. If you wake up every morning to perfect weather and a perfect sky to eat perfect meals after a perfect eight hours of sleep in a perfect place to do exactly what you want to do in the way you wanted to do it without any trials, without any difficulties, without any work whatsoever, it wouldn't be perfect. It would be normal. It wouldn't be special. And so it wouldn't be enjoyed. It wouldn't be something that doesn't fill the longings of our hearts. And so we wouldn't sense our absolute need for Christ. We cannot replace Christ. We must fix our minds and our hearts and our eyes, all of our lives upon Christ, and hold loosely to the things of this world as enjoyable as they are. And then, and only then, can we look at a sunset and delight in what it is for the one or two minutes that it's there. Then and only then can we go on a wonderful vacation and come home refreshed and renewed and enjoying the memories and the joy that it was as opposed to being sad and longing for the next one. Then and only then can we be content with what the Lord has given us, not assuming that we always need more to make us happy. The reality is the more loosely I hold on to the things of this world, the more I am able to enjoy them for what they are and what God intends for them to be in my life. When I don't try to squeeze out of them what they cannot provide. So how then shall we live? Well, Paul shows us in our final point this morning, verses 3 and 4, that Christians should live in light of their new identity. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, Paul gives us both a past and future reality in these two verses. Our past is given in verse 3, namely that we have died. And we already looked at that previously. We have died when we're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit and are hidden with Christ in God. And the way Paul writes this is that of an ongoing reality. When we are in Christ, we are inseparably and always in Christ, secure forever, united to Jesus Christ. Our lives are a part of the above, as he mentions. But let's not overlook the fact that your life is hidden only insofar as you are with Christ. In other words, if you do not have Christ in your life, your life is very much exposed. Your life is very much vulnerable and precarious. The wrath of God is being stored up for you when you are apart from Christ. And it will come raining down in its mighty and majestic power and you will suffer the consequence of your sin forever and ever. Remember previously I I said it's not wrong to be motivated to look to Christ because of the consequences of sin. It's certainly not. But remember also that 
the remedy to sin is not found in me and you. The only way your life can be thought of in any sense as hidden in Christ is if you are united by faith with the Son of God. There is safety and security in Christ alone. If you want to be hidden from God's wrath, you must be found hidden in the one who took God's wrath on himself. And it is only by faith, placing your faith and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And maybe some of you here this morning, you don't know Christ. You don't love Christ. You don't abide in Christ. You aren't hidden in Christ. But the good news of Scripture is that by faith alone, you can come to Christ trusting in Him all that He is, all that He has accomplished in fulfilling the perfect law of God on behalf of His people in our place because we fail to do so day by day. Dying on a cross and taking upon Himself the full weight of the wrath of God in the place of His people that we need not endure it forever. Being raised from the dead to conquer sin and death on our behalf that we might dwell and live with Him forever and ever in glory. And by faith, receiving Him and all of His promises, we too can escape the wrath of God being hidden in Christ. Will you come to Christ by faith? And when our lives are hidden in Christ, we have a source of spiritual life that is inexplicable to those who are not in Christ. They can't figure out where we find perseverance when when persecution comes knocking at the door or why we show mercy to those who have mistreated us or, or what accounts for our praise of God when pain is so often or when life is so chaotic. There is an element of mystery in the rationale and motivation of the Christian life. Why does one man refuse to exploit the opportunity for financial gain while others so easily justify circumventing the law? Why does one young lady steadfastly resist the sexual advances of a boyfriend while others will so quickly yield without a second thought? What accounts for a life that is qualitatively different when the very difference costs so much in terms of worldly, economic, and political perspectives? Paul's use of the word hidden is somewhat analogous to what we can say of a flower. The root system is concealed beneath the surface of the earth. How it derives nutrients from the soil and that contributes to its growth of the stem and the leaves and the flower, all of that is unseen. It's something of a mystery. But the beauty of the rose is there for everyone to behold. Its color and its fragrance are ever on display for the joy of all people who see it and smell it. And so likewise, the Christian whose strength and incentive and inner life are hidden from view, but whose kindness and whose faith and whose perseverance and whose love are perpetual, they are a witness to the glory of God's grace within them. Now for those who are found hidden in Christ, our future He says in verse 4, notice he says when. So today, right here and right now, our lives are hidden in Christ. But there is a day coming when he is revealed from heaven at his coming in his glorious body. And we will also be revealed because we will have bodies like his. 
Paul mentions the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so when Paul says we will appear with him in glory, he's not referring to a place but to an experience. This is the promise of sharing the glorified life of Christ. It is the promise of the eradication of all evil and every fleshly impulse that we have to do evil. It is the promise of everlasting deliverance from greed and pride and lust and envy and unforgiveness. It is the promise that our whole being, our body, our soul, our affections will experience and will forever live in the power and purity of God himself. It's somewhat akin to what Paul has in mind in 2 Thessalonians 1, where he declares that Christ is coming to be glorified in his saints. John Stott writes this, So how will the coming Lord Jesus be glorified in relation to his people? Not among them, as if they will be the theater or stadium in which he appears. Not by them, as if they will be spectators, the audience who watch and worship nor through or by means of them, as if they will be mirrors which reflect his image and glory, although in a sense all of those are true, but rather in them as if they will be a filament which itself glows with light and heat when the electric current passes through it. Stott's point is that we will not only witness Christ's glory with our eyes, we will be enveloped with it engulfed by this surging splendor of it and made experiential participants in it. One day, and oh, what a day that will be, our lives will no longer have to be hidden with Christ in God, but fully and finally and forever seen as we glow with the brightness of His glory for His glory forever and ever. And so until then, brothers and sisters, set your minds on Christ. Set your mind on the things above. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the reminder of your word of what it means to be one who is in Christ. We're thankful for the many examples throughout the history of your church, of your people who have stood faithfully in Christ regardless of the circumstances of their lives. They've been able to resist temptation that comes by way of the world and the flesh and the devil. They've been able to rightly enjoy the many gifts that you have given in this life. But Father, we know that ultimately, we don't simply want to be like these other people because they too have sin in their lives. We want to know and trust and love and be like Christ. We want to be like Christ. And so we pray, oh God, that the instruction of your word would land in our hearts this morning and direct our eyes to the things above that we would seek Christ in His fullness, that we would live according to all that You have commanded, holding loosely to the things of this world and making much of Christ in our lives that we can rightly enjoy the things of this world in their proper place. And so we pray, God, You would do all of this for Your glory for the strengthening of your church, for the good of your people. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.